0: Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org.
1: So it's June 5th at night, and just for my own memories, Dad fell today in the yard, and I was inside cooking. And I didn't know where he was, so I looked out the window and I could see he was on the ground, but it looked like he was pulling up weeds or something. And then I realized he wouldn't be doing that there. What do you do when your parents' health is literally falling apart and somebody has to take care of them? That's what happened to me a lot sooner than I ever expected. And along the way, I've kept a diary. So he couldn't get up He couldn't get his legs organized under him. And we finally got him up, and he'd been out there for like 10 minutes, and his knees were covered with dirt, and his back of his sweater was covered with leaves, so I can't really tell which way he fell. It's just been a bumpy, bumpy time. This is 24 7, a podcast about what happens when you become your parent's parent. I'm Kitty Isley. I made that recording about three years ago. It was about a year after my mom died, and I was spending a lot of time at my dad's house, cooking meals and making sure he got his medications, because I'd noticed things that used to be normal for him were becoming much harder. He'd miss doctor's appointments, confuse directions, forget all his passwords, or try to microwave food with the wrapper still on. One night I came into the kitchen and found the whole floor covered in bubbles. He'd used Tide Pods in the dishwasher. And he loves that yard, but it is not a safe place for him since he slips and he's had many falls. And what kicked this all off was a fall on the tennis court five years ago. And he ended up in the, I don't know, it was ER, ICU. For five days with a cerebral hematoma or some inner brain bleeding. So whenever he falls, he gets these horrible bruises from blood thinner. What can I say? I was starting to feel really overwhelmed. Like, where's the roadmap for this? Isn't there someone who's supposed to be in charge? I wanted this problem to go away. And it was around that time that I started asking everyone I knew, how am I supposed to do this? No one had any good answers. My dad's friends didn't really want to face what was happening, so they weren't much help. And as for me, my own sanity? So much of the caregiving advice I found online was just trite and annoying. Of course I needed to give myself a break and make sure I get enough sleep. I needed to know how to help my dad. I needed someone insightful, someone to commiserate with, and I needed to know I wasn't alone. So I called a friend who'd lived through this, a gifted author named Anne Bernays. She'd been my writing teacher in a class I'd taken a few years back, and she just seemed wise. Anne took care of her husband for several years when he got Parkinson's. Like me, she was caring for someone who made his living through words, a writer like my dad. Anne first realized something was wrong when she traveled with her husband to Bath, England, to write a story together for the New York Times.
2: We had done a number of travel pieces together because we actually wrote two books together. And Bath is one of my favorite cities. It's like a whole city that's a museum. Um, Nothing has changed since the 19th century. And if you read Jane Austen, she's always going to Bath to take the waters. And in the middle of going through these baths where there was was sort of up and down there were stairs there were sort of rocks there was a nice guide and there was water and on the way back to our hotel he just fell flat out on the sidewalk he had been carrying a, a bottle of tomato juice and the tomato juice broke the bottle broke and went all over the sidewalk and from then on He fell, not frequently, but enough so that you realized something was the matter. He was not diagnosed until about five years before he died, and it was a wonderful neurologist who said, I think you've had Parkinson's for the last four years. I had noticed he didn't have the usual tremor, uh, but he had a couple of the other symptoms. One was that he couldn't make sense of directions. He said, tell me what we're going to do again. And I'd say, well, we're going to pick up so-and-so, and and then we're going to drive to so-and-so, and then we're going there, and then we're coming home, and then we're going to... He couldn't accept that. Now, this is a man who was prodigiously brilliant. I mean, he was just... He knew everything.
1: Your husband was Justin Kaplan, who was an influential author, a widely known author, biographer of Walt Whitman and Mark Twain, won the Pulitzer Prize, twice won the National Book Award, wrote two books with you, as you say, and I think you, I learned he edited Bartlett's quotations? Twice, yes.
2: And he remembered every poem he ever read. I mean, he just had this memory, and he loved poetry, and he was always, always reciting poetry. at Any occasion, any occasion would bring up a, a poem, And so I noticed it was very, very gradual. For instance, if we were going somewhere, let's say to the movies, and he in the past would always have been the one to buy the tickets, and I was the one who did it. So without either of us ever saying anything about it, I took over the lead.
1: When you got a diagnosis, what was his response and what was yours?
2: Well, he was very, he was so private. That kind of introversion is very nice when you think of what the opposite is. On the other hand, sometimes you want to know what he's thinking, for Christ's sake, you know, have a reaction, because he mostly kept his thoughts to himself, and he showed his love and affection in other ways than talking about it.
1: You know, I don't know what your situation was then, because I didn't know you until about a year after he died. I will say in this project, I'm struggling with trying to find a balance between being respectful of the people I really love, but also trying to understand some of the situations I wish I knew were going to come. It was like I just suddenly had, in two instances, turned into my parents' parent and it almost happened overnight. Now, sometimes they were able to get much better, but there were moments where I was doing things that I couldn't have imagined needing to do.
2: Well, I would uh, tell you, it was the same thing. I mean, I had to help him with his depends, and I had to put his socks on for him. I had to cut his toenails. You can ask me anything, Kitty. I'm, there's nothing I'll hold back, really. So I
1: did. I asked Anne about the stuff I couldn't find answers for. For one thing, the ick factor of bodily functions. I mean, who wants to talk about helping a loved one use the bathroom? And the guilt I felt just even mentioning that. Um, As far as the depends part, I mean, I've been in these situations, and he didn't feel that he was losing dignity.
2: This is what I mean about being private. I think he did, but he wouldn't talk about it often he was further from the bathroom than I was and he would get up in the morning and I, I said well pee in your thing you know you have a plastic thing you can pee in the things with a handle a urinal with a handle and he wouldn't and he'd walk to the bathroom leaving a trail of pee on the floor for me to clean up and I thought you know this is <laughs> this is hard because it's hard for me to scold him when I knew he didn't want to pee in this bottle. I knew he wanted to be on his own, but he wouldn't talk about it. And so every once in a while I got impatient and I'd say, look what you're doing, you know, and then I would feel terribly guilty.
1: Oh, I know that, I know that.
2: (laughs) I'd feel terribly guilty. And often when, for instance, we left the apartment to go somewhere He would take about 10 minutes to get ready, which was just putting on his coat and seeing if he had, well, he had his keys, but he didn't need to take them because I would take them, and his wallet, and he didn't need the wallet because I had my wallet. But he would stand there trying to make sure he had everything he needed, and I would get impatient. And then I'd hate myself. You know, It's hard. I mean, there are so many emotional currents going at once. So I think impatience was my main problem, not the actual care that I was giving him, but my supply of patience.
1: Did he withdraw a lot? And did you keep that a secret from, you know, this is a man of letters, if anybody is, your husband was and well-known in a publishing world, and yet you're taking care of at home.
2: He was very, very sad that he couldn't write anymore, and I would give him assignments. I would say, write about the woman who brought you up, because he was very, very close to her, and he never really did write about her, and I wanted him to because she was an amazing woman. And he tried, and he couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. And I think that was the uh, the Parkinson's that had got to his brain, I guess.
1: I'm watching that with my dad, who is a writer. And it's the, the thing that he turned to, no matter what, he wanted to write about it. And now it is very hard to track the idea or to keep the logic or to even read a book. I'm watching him having trouble paying attention through a book, keeping the thought. And so even though he's back at home and sitting down in front of his computer with a lot of files that he wants to turn into a book, I can see how complicated that is. He did a self-published memoir, and it had a lot of mistakes. And he was an editor forever. So I know what it looks like. And I don't know how to comfort that. And I guess I can't. And I want to.
2: I mean, you didn't ask my advice, but I would just not even mention it to him. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything like uh, "Too bad you can't do this." I just let it go because he's, he's hurting enough. He knows he's not doing it, and that's terribly hurtful. And I could see it in Joe's face that he was really, really um, depressed. And a couple of times we took a trip to New York. I mean, he wasn't helpless, but he fell a lot. I remember he fell flat on his face in Target once. He would get right up. I never knew when this was going to happen. Finally, he got a walker, and at first he didn't want to use it, but then he did. And I think he was happier with the walker. And I wasn't facing the truth really very well. I remember telling the dentist, please don't do anything to him because he's going to die soon. Well, part of me knew he was, and part of me knew he would never die. And that, that it's, a, <laughs> it's very, very difficult. The slow decline is agonizing. It was like emotional drowning. And I did go and get some help. And she said that I had suffered PTSD, that it was so traumatic, because we'd been together for 60 years, and did everything together.
1: Did you ever feel sort of responsible for cheering Joe up?
2: He was always cheerful. Even when he was depressed, he was cheerful. He didn't need cheering up, he really didn't. He was always really good company. I remember two days before he went into the hospital for the last time, he was sitting there watching the news and I just reached out and and held his hand. And you know, we smiled at each other.
1: Anne Bernay's husband, writer Justin Kaplan, died in 2014. Anne took care of him for five years. She did it on her own.
2: It's very complicated, but in the end, it was a loving act of mine. I really, I really believe that.
0: The University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio is proud to support this podcast. At our Biggs Institute, we're expanding the horizons of Alzheimer's research while striving to support everyone involved in dementia care, from patients and families to healthcare professionals. Benefit from our free online programs and educational resources. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. In our
1: next episode, I tackle one of the many tiny things that nobody tells you you'll need to figure out as a caregiver.
0: Shaving is a big part of being a man, and doing it yourself is kind of implicit in that, and looking after yourself. And suddenly having to do that for for someone you care for is a really big kind of moment in realizing that they're perhaps not quite the person they used to be.
1: If you heard something you liked on 24-7, share it with a friend, a family member, or someone in your community. You can find all of our episodes at tpr.org slash 247. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, and Ben Henry, with editing help from Cindy Carpion. The show is a production of Texas Public Radio.
0: Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. We are building an inclusive community designed to support everyone impacted by dementia, starting with improved care for patients and their caregivers. Thanks to this commitment and the work of our partners, San Antonio has been named a Dementia-Friendly City by Dementia-Friendly America. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org.